0: exclusive podcast from impact 89 fm
1: east lansing the impact you're listening to impact exposure
2: exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today broadcasting from the campus of michigan state university this is impact
3: Exposure. exposure You're tuned to Impact Exposure. In world news today, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has made an unannounced visit to Libya aimed at showing support for the Libyan people and building ties, according to the BBC. Mrs. Clinton was in the capital, Tripoli, for only a few hours, the first U.S. cabinet-level official to visit since Muammar Gaddafi was ousted. She said she hoped that Gaddafi would be captured or killed. In national news, the world's biggest technology company, Apple, has reported full-year results showing net profit for the year to to September 25th at nearly $26 billion, up 85% from last year, according to the BBC. And in Michigan news, about 50 protesters from Occupy Detroit rallied outside Detroit's Guardian Building this afternoon, where Bank of America's downtown branch is located, according to com. The protest was civil and did not block access to the building. Protesters did not attempt to enter the bank. However, representatives did deliver a letter to the bank's branch manager calling for an end to foreclosures. Protesters promised they will return Friday for another protest. If Bank of America doesn't declare a foreclosure moratorium. And speaking of Occupy Cities, um, we will be talking about the Occupy Wall Street movement later in the hour. Also in the hour, we'll be talking about the environmental impacts that can increase the risk of breast cancer, as well as what makes someone great. And we will also have vocal jazz performers honey wilkinson in um, to talk with us as well as our michigan storytelling segment in which i'll be interviewing someone that walked a thousand miles across lake michigan or i should say around lake michigan but right now in the studio i have matthew fletcher and he is the director of indigenous law and policy center at msu's college of law and he's here to talk about some of the issues facing the native population today welcome to the show matthew fletcher
4: thank you very much
3: So talk about your study titled Race and an American Indian Tribal Nationhood.
4: Well, that study came out of a a discussion and controversies involving tribal membership. And historically, it's always been that you have to prove that you are somehow uh, descended from an American Indian and have a certain what what they call blood quantum in order to be an American Indian. That's why you have a bunch of people running around the country saying, well, I'm part Indian. No one ever says, I'm part African or I'm part Chinese. They say they're part Indian, which is sort of an odd thing. Um, And you can see around the nation, a lot of controversies resulting from tribal membership. You see California tribes out West that have uh, big gaming revenues, kicking people out, saying that they're not really tribal members. Uh, Pretty flimsy historical evidence. You see the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma trying to uh, kick out its uh, members who are descendants of Cherokee of the Cherokee Freedmen, who were uh, descendants of African slaves, who were actually slaves of the Cherokees in the 19th century, and I thought that uh, a possible solution to that would to be reconsidering this whole notion of race as uh, as a, a requisite for tribal membership.
3: So speaking of tribal membership and, and the idea of blunt quantum, so what percent native are you is what you're talking about there. Um, you said um, in, in a, um, an article that I wrote that some tribes are being run by non natives so how does that happen and how does that affect the tribe
4: well what, what has happened because of federal Indian law and in in history over the last couple hundred years is that many indian tribe tri- or many Indian reservations are um, are, are, the lands on the reservations are primarily owned by non-Indians and the people who live there are primarily non-Indians. And because they're on the reservation, they're, they sort of exist in a jurisdictional limbo. Nobody can really govern their actions. And reservations all over the country suffer from things like people coming onto the reservation with a whole bunch of garbage and just dumping it on the reservation and then running away scot-free. That is, that's endemic to Indian country all over the place. And you have non-Indians who engage in petty criminal acts on the reservation, and then you have non-Indians who engage in things like domestic violence and other misdemeanors, especially against American Indian women. And Indian tribes are foreclosed from doing any kind of thing to react to that because federal Indian law, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, restricts the tribal government's ability to react and to regulate the activities of people who are not members. And my theory is that there must be a way to um, incorporate non-members into the tribal community when they have a residency, when they have an impact, so to speak, on the reservation, and so that this would be able to increase the the tribe's ability to respond to a lot of these um, pollution and violent crimes and uh, all sorts of things economically that are happening to Indian people.
3: So I understand that a non-Native man married to a Native woman um, on a reservation cannot be prosecuted for, let's say, domestic violence um, by the governing American Indian nation. How is, that, how is that possible? Well,
4: in 1978, the Supreme Court said that tribes can't do that. And they said, we don't know who's going to do it, we don't really care, um, perhaps the federal government. And it's true, the federal government has jurisdiction over non-Indians on reservations for criminal activities that tribes and tribes do not but the problem is is that the federal prosecutors do not go into um federal prosecution uh to to handle domestic violence misdemeanors and crimes like that um federal prosecutors deal with terrorism and drug trafficking and kidnapping and bank robberies and major federal felonies uh conspiracies and that sort of thing Domestic violence misdemeanors are not something they're really prepared to deal with. They often don't have the resources to, to deal with it. And as a practical matter, it takes a long time to drive from the FBI office in Grand Rapids to the Upper Peninsula, where many of the reservations are. And so it, even if they had the resources, it's almost impossible for them to prosecute. And so uh, non-Indians generally have, um, are in, in many ways, are sort of immune from prosecution and immune from regulation.
3: And what would you say are some of the biggest issues um, that face Native American populations today?
4: Some of the biggest issues, I think, are pretty consistent with uh, what everyone in the United States is facing, just probably to a greater degree. And those big issues are poverty, lack of educational opportunities, and job opportunities. Um, Because so many Indian reservations are in rural areas, access to health care is is difficult. and you know, as there there was a big report on ABC in the last couple of days with Diane Sawyer in 2020, in which they demonstrated how an, an American Indian middle class family, lower middle class family, on many reservations has no opportunity to actually buy healthy food. Uh, they, they they exist in sort of these. Uh, dead zones where there's there's no good food to eat except fast food and, and really poor poorly produced um, you know processed foods, so that the kinds of things that face Indian people around the country are typical with anybody who lives in a rural area. That's that's often very depressed.
3: Well, in the studio is. Uh, Matthew Fletcher. He is the director of the Indigenous Law and Policy Center for MSU College of Law, and he recently put out a study titled Race in American Indian Tribal Nationhood to talk about the issues facing Native American populations today. Matthew Fletcher, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
4: Thank you very much.
2: You're listening to
3: Impact Exposure. what floor are you going
0: to <clears throat> oh uh 3 thanks <laughs> Hey, didn't we, uh, have...
3: Yeah, that one class. Yeah,
0: that's so funny the, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... I was wondering if you... If I could stick my finger in your eye.
3: What? No. Oh, I
0: just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex in Ew, my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird?
3: No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh.
0: Sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free.
5: Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash hands.
1: Impact 89FM
3: Tune to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. There has been lots of talks about how great and influential Bill Gates was. MSU psychology professor Zach Hambrick is here to talk about his study about what makes someone great. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So what do most theorists believe makes someone great?
6: Well, uh, one thing that's quite clear from research is that a very long period of practice is necessary to become highly skilled in music or art or science or a game like chess so um, the exact number isn't uh, exact amount of time isn't known but maybe on the order of 10 years of really intensive practice and engagement in the activity.
3: And, and what did you find in your study and, and what do you believe makes someone great?
6: Well the, the big question that we've asked in our research is whether uh, practice, and in particular what has been called deliberate practice, so practicing with the specific purpose of improving your performance, whether that is enough. So if two people practice the same amount, will they reach the same level of performance? Uh, That has been the question that's really motivated our research. And um, in one study, we looked at uh, piano sight reading. And what we found in that study, not surprisingly, is that uh, practice, deliberate practice, was a major factor in accounting for differences across people in their performance in in a sight reading task that we had set up in the lab. Uh, But what we also found which was more surprising and controversial was that what we call working memory capacity predicted people's performance above and beyond practice. So working memory capacity is being able to hold in mind information over a short period of time. And the important point is that it's a general ability um, as opposed to an acquired skill.
3: So working memory capacity is something that someone's born with. Um, So let's say someone has a really strong working memory capacity, but someone practices more than that person with a higher working memory capacity, who's going to win?
6: Well there's no doubt in our study there was no doubt about which factor was more important in in predicting performance it was practice so I would definitely put my money on the person who practices more but when we're talking about what separates the best from from the rest then working memory capacity we think is one factor that might um, might contribute to performance at the very uh, differences at the very highest level so, separating the best from the rest, so to speak,
3: so why did you want to study um a topic like what makes someone great what 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 motivated you to to do that
6: well i'm not I'm not sure exactly um this is a question that i've been interested in uh since I was starting out as a graduate student um, in in psychology, and looking back it's something that i've been fascinated with f- since I was really a child i 've always been interested in exceptional performance and how people become really highly skilled at at what they do
3: and how would you define what makes uh, someone who is great
6: Well um, we think of the uh, greatness in terms of uh, a purely objective definition so uh, someone who is is great or someone who's highly skilled is someone who performs at a consistently high level on tasks in a, a particular domain. So um, a good chess player is uh, someone who chooses high quality moves in a, in a chess game and that can be evaluated objectively. Um, someone who wins tournament chess games. So we, we think of greatness or, or high levels of skill in terms of that sort of objective Uh, um, definition in terms of subjective criteria like reputation or or even credentials
3: well in the studio is psychology professor zach hambrick and he was just um here to talk about his study about what makes someone great zach hambrick thanks so much for joining us tonight on exposure
2: thank you you're listening to
3: impact exposure
1: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
3: Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative
6: country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Prime you wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw.
5: Check out these pics of this huge tree falling
6: probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love
7: your elbows. Oh, wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now.
6: Dude, what the f- So why would you send a text while driving? <laughs> Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and $200 after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're
2: making out.
1: Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact.
2: Now, back to
3: Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Sunny Wilkinson. She is a vocal jazz singer and she'll be performing this saturday at the with the lansing symphony orchestra here at the wharton center on campus oh sorry on friday that's right thank you she's waving (laughs) her hands at me across the studio on friday at 8 p.m at the wharton center welcome to the show sunny hi
8: emily it's great to
3: be here so tell me a little bit about this show what will you be singing
8: well this is going to be so exciting first of all it's going to be uh, my jazz trio with Larry Ogletree on drums, Ed Fidoa on bass, and Ron Newman on piano in combination with the Lansing Symphony. So jazz and symphonic works together. It's going to be some great music.
3: So have you ever performed with a large classical group before as as a jazz vocalist? I
8: have. I have done so. I have been a guest with the Lansing Symphony um, doing like Fourth of July concerts or Christmas concerts. But this whole concert is my concert. So that's what's unique. And also, I've never done it with my jazz trio. So to combine the two mediums is so great.
3: And how would you describe the difference between singing with a classical orchestra versus a jazz orchestra?
8: Time feel time, you know what what the rhythm's doing and how it's locked in, and where you feel the center of the pulse, kind of thing.
3: Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and how did you start getting involved with jazz?
8: Oh my goodness, I was I was a choral ed major at Arizona State. And I was going to be a choir conductor. And I started singing in this sort of blood, sweat, and tears, kind of kind of horn band, rock and roll meets blues, meets funk meets jazz kind of band. And I just got swayed. I started listening to this music and couldn't believe how cool the improvisation was. People like Frank Zappa, people that were taking things a little bit left of center just really intrigued me, and still love that today.
3: So when you were at Arizona State, you studied classical voice. I
8: did. Primarily,
3: but then also were were involved with jazz.
8: Well, really, I mean, I was involved in classical music there, and on the side I was doing jazz, but I sang opera when I was at... I did the Marcellina and the Marriage of Figaro and The Witch and Hansel and Gretel, and, and then I went off and... Sang in the clubs.
3: <laughs> so, so how are you able to balance that, the, the, the classical world with jazz? Not well.
8: I didn't get much sleep through college. No, that's not true. I feel like I had the best of both worlds. Do you know, I was doing, I was performing in everything. I was performing in music theater. I was performing in rock and funk and jazz clubs. I was performing in operas and singing with the choirs. I was just learning everything I could about music when I was in college.
3: So how would you describe Mid-Michigan's jazz scene?
8: You know, it's pretty alive right now. Between what has come alive at Michigan State and the wonderful Mid-Michigan Jazz Society, um, Mid-Michigan has an infusion of jazz. And don't forget, the Detroit area and all of the state has a great history. Um, iconic people have come from this state. So the state is... There's something in the soil that breeds great musicians here.
3: And where's the best place to see jazz music in the area?
8: Wharton Center on Friday night <laughs> at eight o'clock.
3: <laughs> but I know I remember when I was when I was a, a, a music undergrad here. I remember on Thursday nights everyone would go to Green River. Is that the oh, name? Oh, that's right. And that's... so and it was packed. So many people would come, mm-hmm. yep. and and jazz players from the College of Music would would be there and perform, and, and it was hopping. But that's I, but right. But that, since it's not there anymore, I'm curious. Where are some other places?
8: Well, now I don't know where the College of Music, the, where the jazz students are holding their combos night. I don't, I don't know where they're holding that anymore. Um, there, Mumbai, on in right in East Lansing has jazz every Thursday night.
3: Okay. So we've got some, some other options around here. So I don't know if this is a touchy. I'm an old road rat now. I'm
8: I'm going out and doing concerts. So.
3: <laughs> well, I was going to ask you. I don't know if this is a sore subject, but um, the vocal jazz program came to a close last year here at MSU. Yes. Um. And so, what have you been doing with your time since then? You know, you had a you were teaching vocal jazz over at MSU. Now that program's done. What are you doing with your time?
8: Well, I am so lucky to have hooked up with. Um, a wonderful new manager, who is as inspired in business and passionate about business as I am about music, and we're making a tremendous team. We're pitching festivals, and symphonic gigs, and big band gigs around the country and world. And I'm working on a new record, and I'm I'm teaching some wonderful private students out of my home. People that really want to come and study with me, are coming. And and that's 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 wonderful. I'm having a great time.
3: Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So I'm curious, what keeps jazz alive in this day and age? Um, I mean, there will always be your old standards that everyone knows. Um, but do you think that jazz is about improvising on those old standards, or is there a new wave of jazz that a younger generation is attracting themselves to?
8: Well, look, here's what I think. I think that the every generation, young people, have passionate, fiery energy and have passionate dreams and it's that youth and the the young vision that breathes life into music jazz is, is improvisation human beings are improvisatory beings and we're we're built to press out the parameters jazz will always pull in young people to press out those parameters and find what the new expression is you know it's not just about the old standards there has been um free jazz free expression of improvisation crossing uh, improvisational jazz with classical music it's always it's always pushing the boundaries and that's what I love about the music and what I love about the young people doing the music too
3: so how has jazz affected other genres of music over time
8: well check out the blues right the blues is in every kind of music there is from funk to rock and roll to grunge metal and that, that comes out of jazz. It's infused itself a, a, into every kind of music there is. Look at hip-hop, taking, lifting Miles Davis's solos and putting that on, uh, making a combination of a rap record. How, how interesting is that?
3: And, and what is your favorite thing about jazz?
8: Oh, I love, I am such a warm and fuzzy girl, I love the communication aspect I love that when you're playing music at a really high level you're listening so acutely to each other the new things and interesting things are going to happen every time now does that happen every time no but you always are looking for that possibility of really great communication and interaction
3: well in the studio is Sunny Wilkinson she'll be reforming at the Wharton Center this Friday At 8 p.m., and you have one more thing to say?
8: Well, I did want to say that um, there are discount tickets available for students if they they come to the Wharton Center. uh, I believe it is an hour early they can take advantage of that.
3: So at 7 p.m. if students show up at the Wharton Center. Mm Excellent. Um, so again, in the studio, Sunny Wilkinson. She'll be performing with the Lansing Symphony Orchestra. And the, the title of the concert is Sunny Swings, the American Songbook. Again, that's Friday, 8 p.m. at the Wharton Center. Sunny, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And we're going to take um, you out with a song. This is off one of your albums. This is called Drunk in San Francisco. Anything you want to say about the song before we play it?
8: No, just enjoy it. Thank you so much for having me, Emily.
3: Thank you, Sunny.
1: In San Francisco, I always stay out of my mind. But if you've been to San Francisco, they say that things like this go on all the time. Really seem to help myself. And what's more, I don't care. I'm always drunk in San Francisco. like the lover's kiss goes straight to my brain I guess it's just the mood I'm in that acts
3: tuned to impact exposure i'm your host emily fox and again that was our own sunny wilkinson she's a vocal jazz singer as you probably have figured out and she'll be performing at the wharton center this friday at 8 p.m and now the occupy wall street movement has been sweeping across the nation for the past month and this week lansing is getting involved with occupy lansing and right now we're going to talk about the movement from an, from a few activists as well as with a scholar welcome to the show everyone
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Can you go around and introduce yourselves?
2: I'm Ken David. I teach social cultural anthropology, and I talked all this over with my classes on social movements and organizational anthropology, and they have some questions they wanted to hear answered.
5: Um, My name is Hokio Joshua Ruthier. I am a student at Lansing Community College and a meditation tutor. Um, I'm also a Zen monk in the Rinzai Zen lineage, uh, Hollow Bones. And my name
0: is Kane DeBoer. Um, I'm also a student at LCC going for a degree in psychology. And wanted to make clear, we are not spokespeople. I just wanted to say that real quick.
3: All right. So first off, these protests have been going on um, starting in New York um, a month ago, almost exactly. How did these protests begin?
5: Um, as far as I know um, the movement started with just a few people sort of uh, I believe mean, from Adbusters in Canada yeah. they got together started this up kind of undercover and then once they had every you know, kind of an infrastructure in place they went out there and just started occupying it started with just uh, I think maybe about a dozen people or so and then all of a sudden it just kept growing and growing as word spread even though there was a bit of, you know lack of media coverage
3: and what would you say is the overall message of these protests?
2: Um, okay, to whom? I mean, in one way it's it's counter narrative to the Tea Party, even though some Tea Partiers are part of it. I mean, it is a nonviolent protest that did not get hijacked by some of the violence in Rome, which is one of the fifteen hundred plus sites that are currently occupied. It is a bunch of people that are... You know, just to give the bottom line on this, what's the best thing that can happen to the Occupy movement? Some people say the Republicans are trying to hijack it. Some say the Democrats. But there's a third possibility. An historical precedent happened in the 1870s when the country was controlled by financial interests in the East Coast and not 99, but 95% of the country was farming. They formed a movement that you might have heard about. It's called the Grangers. Mm -hmm. And they set up a platform of moves against the financial interests, such as limiting the monopoly on grain transport. And guess what? Instead of becoming a third party or joining with one of the two, they, with the complete majority of voters on their side, won over both of the parties so that their platform was adopted. That's a third possibility here. I'd also like to
5: add to that and say that, you know, on the ground, I think the feeling is is that, for me, the message I hear is that regardless of where one is coming from, there is this common sense of we as the 99%, the 99% of us that are struggling, trying to make ends meet, paying off student mm-hmm. loans, whatever are not being heard. Somehow our, our freedom of speech, our ability to be heard was taken away and uh, there seems to be the one common factor that the Citizens United decision of the Supreme Court has basically made it so that freedom of speech is a, is now a commodity that somehow mm-hmm. corporations by political contribution can now somehow co-opt our politicians. Mm-hmm. Our government not re- isn't really there for us anymore in a sense. And I'm not quite sure how that happened but there's a way in which because of it, there's a significant lack of compassion and care about one another here, and I'm not sure why or how that happened, but that seems to be a big part of the message
0: well, and I think the the larger message to that is disenfranchisement too um, a lot of folks don't feel like they're being represented by the people that are in government huh. um to put it a little bit more simply, but to kind of add it onto to his comment um that corporations are being represented as people while those of us working our nine to fives and daily grinds aren't, and I'm—I think that's the the biggest message, at least that I've
2: heard. Hmm. Let me just take up the notion of voice, because uh, I mean, you introduced me as activists and a scholar. <laughs> Let me remind you that in the '60s there was a book out called "Teaching as a Subversive Activity." <laughs> 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 okay, here's something about voice. Um, European nations are more sympathetic to what's going on there and as you probably know there have been occupies in Madrid, Athens, Rome, Amsterdam, Brussels also Islamabad, Tokyo, Frankfurt, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Darwin. It's all over the place and voice is really important here because if you take three terms, citizens, companies and government, in the US who has the most voice? Companies. Talk about standards-making, for example, right? The companies have the most voice. In the People's Republic of China, for example, instituting something like putting tracing mechanisms on cattle so we can trace and track them for diseases, that was the government's word, and no protest was heard. In Europe, however, citizens do have more voice than citizens do here in the United States. For example, a German supermarket chain put out a loyalty card that had way too much privacy invasion, right? Citizens were heard, and that feature was deleted. So my conclusion here is, you know, you've, you've got the internal side of things with the compassion. I'm saying it in a more political exterior landscape way, is that we're getting something more of the European model in having citizen voice added to the other two.
3: So, um, Ken David, can you talk a little bit about you teach social movement classes here on campus? You know, talk a little bit about the conversations you've been having in your classes regarding this issue. Oh,
2: sure. Well, I already talked about one. That was their first question: What's the best thing that can happen? Um, the others are standard things you talk about with social movements: Who are we? Who are they? What do we want? What's wrong? What are we going to do about it? How do we do it? That's the biggie: How do we do it? Who are we? You've you've said it already nicely. Ninety-nine percent. And mainly nonviolent. It's a people power business, but the WHO is spreading all over the world. They is something that, you know, what do you say, a rebellion against the really wealthy? Although, note that in other places, the Occupy has other targets. For example, Occupy is a rebellion against the austerity measures imposed by the Greek government. Right? So there's diversity here in. Who are they and what's wrong? I mean, what you said, you know both of you have said, things wrong for the middle and other classes, tossed out of homes, groceries or rent, denied quality medical care, environmental pollution, long hours for little pay. There are lots of things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. And-
5: Please go ahead. I was going to add to that real quick is that, I mean, that's not just true on the city to city or country to country basis. That's true on the individual. One of the things that's wonderful about this movement is a beautiful thing is that each individual coming into it has their own motives, their own agenda, but they're all in agreement that something needs to shift and change. I've seen folks that are socialists, libertarians, Democrat, Republican, does not care about politics. Anyone just come in and just lend a hand, help out, because they want to see real change. Um, and I've also seen, like I said, with agendas. You know, for me, one of the agendas I've heard a few times, um, and this this is not anyone else's but mine. But what I've heard is there's a lot of irritation with uh, our govern uh, our governor and a lot of the changes he's enacted. For example, the loss of twelve thousand families and their their EBT benefits just because this odd targeting of students. Uh, that's a perfect example. I mean, there's there's always there's all these things that we want to see done, but coming to a cohesive mm-hmm. statement, it's it's more difficult. So.
0: And I wanted to speak a little bit to the they. Um, I don't feel that it's necessarily at individually wealthy people and the people themselves, but at larger organizations that don't have any accountability. Um, and they don't have any, in a way, responsibility to the larger populace and larger communities that we have. Um, I'm not saying that any particular you know, millionaire or even billionaire is responsible or even part of the them. It's when you de-individuate, when you get away from the individual people into these larger groups that they aren't the ones directly dealing with these problems, but they're benefiting from them.
3: So what kind of an impact do you think that these Occupy Wall Street protests have achieved thus
5: far? I think for me what I've noticed um, just from sort of my subjective experience is that I've noticed that it's brought... Um, inequality back into the discussion of national and international, um, you know, di- just conversation. There's a way in which I think for a while we fell asleep and we we I don't know if we assumed that there was no in, there was no inequality or that we couldn't do anything about it. Maybe it was a learned helplessness aspect, but there's a way in which it's brought that back into the discussion, and it's really amazing. I think another effect is that, in a way, it's shown that the people can stand up and get things done. I mean, if you look what happened with um, occupy Wall Street and the uh, protesters who found out the identity of the police officer who assaulted those women out on Wall Street and then proceeded to you know call in and get this man uh, identified and then uh, an investigation filed against him or the folks on the Brooklyn Bridge when they stood up to the police and actually you know resisted arrest there's a way in which there's a it's brought back into this notion that we 're not helpless that we actually can do something if we unite and mobilize. And one thing also that I think that it's doing is it
0: is breaking us away from the established um, narrative of Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives. And because of its its transpolitical nature, um, it's showing that that isn't what motivates us, um, that we can see things beyond those labels and really move to
2: effect change. Just adding on to that divergent definitions of what is wrong is not a problem right now. There are a lot of things that are said and what should be done that's also really divergent. What is not usual in American politics these days, and yes, I'm going back to the sixties, is the bringing together of all sorts of people from many walks of life, crossing boundary spanning, crossing all these divisions that are sometimes opposed to one another. And my old teacher, Victor Turner, would have said This is something like a pilgrimage that is happening. That may sound like a strange image to you, but the feeling of community, or as he called it, communitas, is an impact. You ask for impacts. That here is a political direction that certainly does not follow the usual political strain of things.
3: So, Professor Ken David, I'm curious, what motivated you to study um, the topic of, of social movements?
2: I study all sorts of social movements. This just happened to be one well, that came along. Well, in general,
3: in general, what made you... Oh, really?
2: Oh, sure. Um, I was working in, the, in Sri Lanka, in the northern part of it, you know, where you couldn't miss it because you have that usual post-colonial happening where an overachieving a minority gets politically dominated by the numerical superior group. And so I was living in the area called Jaffna, occupied by the Tamils. And this people with a wonderful classical background became involved as serfs, you know, in the new political reality and second class citizens. And it evolved into a civil war. Now, people I knew and cared for, right, and that includes people on the other side of the ethnic business, the Sinhalese people lost all their possibilities of working together, people who'd been educated together in the same public schools, like Harry Potter's school, the grammar school, and then you evolved into a situation where there were terrorists on both sides and some of them were wearing uniforms. In other words, how could you miss right, worrying about these kind of situations of human mobilization?
3: So I'm curious, through all of your studies of social movements over the years, is there anything that makes these Occupy Wall Street um, protests any different or, or unique? I, I just
2: said it, that you know the bringing together of people who are most commonly divided in a lot of situations us against them, the we and the they feeling in lots of social life. We're enormously fragmented. Fragmentation has been augmented these days by the simple use of cell phones and other media so that people are no longer communicating with each other. And now suddenly you have this huge group of people. They're not a group yet, but this huge horde of people in various places who are interacting with that regard to these social differences that have ruled them mostly.
0: And I wanted to add one thing onto fragmentation is the other thing is the polarization in this country. Um, it's become immense. I mean, a lot of people choose where they get their information from who's going to agree with them. And so bridging that polarization um, into a larger group, I think, is even, even more significant.
5: I think I wanted to add to that as well, coming back to um, Ken's point, is that there's a way in which this movement has taken the the very thing that was creating fragmentation the internet the you know text messaging cell phones all that kind of stuff and has utilized it as a new device or tool in the movement to spread information at a speed that you, that would never could have been seen in the 1960s movements there's a way in which just by gathering on facebook or google plus or anything like that We've been able to get so much more uh, connections formed than ever possible. I think another piece to this is that, uh, like the 1960s, that, that brought together a huge number of people. This has brought together even larger groups, larger minorities, uh, and larger amounts of subcultures that we haven't previously seen in a large amount of solidarity. So I think that's really amazing as well. I think that kind of makes it very different than any previous movement.
3: And and finally, let's talk a little bit about um, Lansing, Occupy Lansing. Um, talk a little bit about about what's going on there.
5: Well, right now the occupation is down at Reuters Park, which is on Capitol and Kalamazoo, and uh, just across from the library, the, the library, cattle library, and uh, the. Um, the occupation is going outstandingly Um, the people down there have you know have food they have coats we've had amazing donations from several sources Uh, we had someone donate a generator Um, it's it's been amazing the people down there the people that are staying out there are absolute heroes they're working together forming their own community in a sense and it's going really well in fact There's plans now for this Saturday uh, at one. There's going to be a music festival in solidarity um, just to share this with folks. So, I mean, it's it's this there's a way in which the movement is trying to now, once it's gotten established, to outreach, to connect out further.
3: And and how long this is a week long thing that's been going on?
5: Yes, the occupations bit started. Actually, the, the occupation started about two weeks ago, and then the rally was as of Saturday. Mm-hmm. So there were folks out there last week, a small amount, and then it's grown since then.
3: And how many people do you think are involved right now? Um, in and out. Um,
0: I would say that uh, from my, from what I've seen, there's probably anywhere from 20 to 45 people
2: out there. Thank you very much for inviting us. Yes, no problem. Thank you so much.
5: No problem.
3: And again in the studio we have um, a few people that are involved in Occupy Lansing as well as uh, Professor Ken David, and he was here to talk about um, his classes in which they talked about social social movements. So again, thank you so much, everyone. And just uh, to clarify, there will be a large... Gathering or event on Saturday as well. up at in, one p.m. In one p.m. And then you guys also have a website. I noticed.
0: Yep. Um, there's actually a couple. There's occupy-lansing.us, and for the to get connected with the larger movement, there is occupytogether.org.
3: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
5: Thank you so much. Give a show to everyone.
2: You're listening to
3: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
1: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show
0: every night of the week.
2: Monday nights from 8 till 10, The Asian Invasion brings you the music from The Rising Sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China.
1: Only on Impact 89FM. An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an
6: ordinary bunch of kids.
1: And they were doing nothing. When suddenly...
6: That's a personal foul. active activity on a sunny day.
1: Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed. Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
9: Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have
0: a good day. Small Step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov.
7: A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
2: Now back to
3: Impact Exposure you are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host Emily Fox. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and in the studio are a few experts to talk about the environmental impacts that can increase the risk of the disease. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So can you please introduce yourselves?
7: Hi, I'm Cami Silk from uh, the Department of Communication at Michigan State University.
9: Hi, and I'm Sandra Haslam. I'm a professor in the Department of Physiology at Michigan State University.
3: So last Thursday on campus, you aired a documentary called Living Downstream. Can you talk about that film?
9: Well, it's a film that uh, seeks to raise awareness about uh, environmental pollution and the consideration that that is increasing cancer risks generally. It doesn't specifically address... uh, the issue of the environment and breast cancer.
3: And can you talk a little bit about the environmental and chemical exposures that can increase the risk of breast cancer?
9: Well, actually, the sad part of that story is we don't know very much about that. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that the kinds of studies that are done to test chemicals for cancer risk are frequently never consider the breast as a target for these chemicals. The other aspect of that is that there are certain periods in the lifespan when the breast is more vulnerable to environmental insults, and that has not been taken into consideration when they do testing of chemicals. So the sad part about it is that there probably is a very significant impact of the environment on breast cancer risk, but unfortunately we don't know enough about it, and that's an area uh, of research that is badly needed,
3: I see so how prevalent is breast cancer among other diseases
9: uh, it's one of the highest uh, cancer risks for women in general, and um I think it's one in one in eight women will
7: end up with breast cancer in their lifetime isn't that I think that's the same. Yeah, wow. a
9: lifetime of uh, an average lifetime of eighty two years
3: wow. And, and I understand that MSU is a leader in breast cancer research. Well, we like to think that we are. And, and what are some of what are some of our our, our studies or our findings? So one of the things that we're focusing on
9: specifically with regard to environmental aspects of breast cancer uh, is the specific age period of puberty. So uh, early onset of puberty is uh, known to be a, a risk factor for breast cancer, and. Uh, we think that that is because the breast goes, undergoes a dramatic uh, expansion during that period, and so cells are more vulnerable to exposure to things that can cause cancer, and then um, that results in an increased risk in adulthood. And we have looked at some in chemicals in the environment, and we've also looked at lifestyle uh, factors. And one of the things we're focusing on right now is the effect of diet. Specifically during puberty and its impact on breast cancer risk in adulthood.
3: So, I, I noticed that there are a lot more events and fundraising efforts for women's cancers, opposed to, let's say, men's cancers mm-hmm. or, or some cancers in general. Um, and I noticed that, especially around this time of year, there's a lot of things um, revolved around breast cancer. So, why do you think that there's, there's a special emphasis on women's diseases, especially breast cancer?
7: Well, um, historically, women were left out of of research, and so a lot of um, practices were, you know, not female-specific. Also, um, uh, we just recently wrote an article that has to do with uh, advocacy in, in America. And really, women's issues, health issues, have really only been a focus probably for the last maybe 40 Years maybe that's even giving it um, greater credit. So there was an absence for a long time, and then as the women's rights movements moved along, um, women got got a voice and really became advocates for their own health. So um, I think that now there's just a lot more. attention to women's issues health issues and there's more funding for women's health issues and women feel like they can have a voice and they are uh, forming groups and advocating for more research dollars which is exactly why the breast cancer and environment research program um, in the centers existed because uh, female lobbyists uh, breast cancer lobbyists actually lobbied congress and said we want more research in this area
3: and where would you say most of the research dollars go to like what type of cancers do you think gets the most right now
7: breast cancer probably gets some of the most yeah Yeah.
3: and I think
9: it's because of the active advocacy on behalf of breast cancer over 200,000 women a year get diagnosed with breast cancer and about 50,000 women die of it every year so it's not a a trivial disease and the impact is is huge in terms of the effect on the family it's a, it's a serious problem.
7: And, and anecdotally, if you ask any single person, do you have some, a family member with, with breast cancer or you, do you know somebody with breast cancer, probably more so than any other cancer, they, they'll say yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I listened to a really interesting story the other day, um, and it was a, a breast cancer survivor who um, had to get both breasts removed, and she ran in um, a race, and she said, I'm going to run with no shirt to mm. show you know, that, that this is what happened. And, and, she, and it was really interesting that the, her reaction to the whole situation, how people were kind of grossed out at first, they didn't know how to react. And, you know, she's running and she just feels very, very vulnerable. And at the end, she's like, well, I did it. You know, this is what this whole race is about us to, to raise awareness. And <laughs> here I am. So thought that was very interesting. But are there any other events going on um, in the area related to um, breast cancer awareness month that you guys know off the top of your heads? I know
7: there's a bunch of walks going on, and, and I couldn't tell you where or when, but I do know the, that those types of activities. I mean, if you go around campus um, today, you would have seen tables up with people trying to raise awareness with a lot of the pink ribbon T-shirt type of, types of things.
6: Right.
3: Well, in the studio is Cami Silk and Sandra Haslam, and they are um, professors here at MSU, and they were here to talk about Um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, as well as the environmental impacts that can increase the risk of the disease. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thanks.
2: You're listening to
7: Impact Exposure.
1: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime,
3: where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
0: Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the
6: Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music.
0: Only on
2: Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact
3: Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, in the studio is Laureen, is it or Neuenheis? It is, Neuenheis. Neuenheis. All right, (laughs) author of A a Thousand Mile Walk on the Beach. Welcome to the show.
10: Thanks for having me, Emily.
3: So is this a true story? Did you really walk a thousand miles around, and is it Lake Michigan? I walked a thousand and
10: nineteen miles, so I rounded down for the title of the book. But yes, it was Lake Michigan. That's my favorite place.
3: Wow. And what inspired you to do this walk? I kind of had a midlife
10: crisis that evolved into this midlife adventure, and since Lake Michigan is my favorite place, I decided to get to know it completely by walking around it.
3: So did you write this book, um, did you you walk in order to write the book, or did walking inspire writing a book?
10: Well, I am a writer. Uh, I have an MFA from Spalding University, so when I decided to take on this adventure, I did want it also to be a writing project.
3: I see. So not one came over the other. Correct. So And I also, um, for our listeners, um, uh, Laurie Newenheis will be at Everybody Reads October 27th from 7 to 9 to talk about a book and also do a reading. And Everybody Reads is located on Michigan Avenue uh, right by Gone Wired Cafe. So without further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt of your book? I'd be happy to do that. Out of Time. This segment
10: from Sutton's Bay to Mackinac City, I seemed to find a rhythm in both within my body and with my movement through the land. I could begin the day, set off on the trek, and not have to negotiate any more. There was no more bargaining, make it two more miles and I'll pull out the chocolate. I started hiking and could keep going pretty much all day. I had learned in the last segment to ignore the pain from my feet and this helped tremendously. The lack of negotiation with my body freed my mind. I noticed smells more keenly, wildflowers, skunk cabbage, marshy decomposition, or the crisp, fresh air off the lake. And I could think the long, uninterrupted thought that is almost impossible in everyday life. I began to ponder the connections of the people to the lake, the economy to the lake, of invasive species, the cost of dumping sewage or industrial waste into the lake versus dealing with them another, another way. I considered the complexity of the lake's ecosystem. Earlier in the trek, I had walked through the lakeshore of Grand Haven, Michigan, along the Grand River. It is into this river that the city of Grand Rapids used to routinely, during large rainstorms, dump its sewage from the overwhelmed water treatment system. This caused Grand Haven to close its beaches until the coliform bacteria counts decreased to safe levels again. How, I wonder, could this have been allowed to continue for so many years? And Grand Rapids is the only one of the many cities that dump sewage into the lake after heavy rains. This is a minor example of the harm that has been and continues to be done to the lake. There are areas along the lake and its rivers that have been dumping grounds for industry in the past and have been cleaned up. Some of the removed sediment and soil have been too toxic to treat or dump elsewhere, so it has been entombed in concrete vaults along the lakeshore like the one in Montague. Egypt has their ancient pyramids where kings and their riches were transported to the gods. Modern America has its toxic tombs where man-made chemicals never before seen on earth are kept sequestered from nature so they will bring no further harm.
3: And in the studio is Laureen Neuenheis. She is the author of A Thousand-Mile Walk on the Beach, and she's here for the Michigan Storytelling segment. So I noticed in your reading you talked a lot about some environmental issues. Um, Was that a focus of of your hike, and and I guess what did you learn and, and what surprised you about Um, I guess environmental issues here in the state of Michigan I didn't
10: intend for the book to be an environmental call to action but as I researched each segment I did the hike in 10 segments and I would look into each segment the people the history the pollution the the geology and as that knowledge accrued as I walked I began to see the damage that we have done to the lake and are continuing to do to the lake so it, it really started to concern me so those threads are definitely in the book
3: and what are your biggest concerns as far as Lake Michigan? Uh, the invasive species
10: uh, problem is one that we just have not shut the door on. The Asian carp are still getting very close to Lake Michigan. The quagga mussels have completely colonized the, the deeper regions of the lake um, and are completely eroding the food web. And this is a, a door that should have been shut uh, many years ago.
3: So you walked over 1,000 miles. and how? In what time span of time did you do this and you said you did it in chunks can you talk about just kind of the the timeline of everything and how how long would you walk and and things like that sure
10: i averaged 16 miles a day i began in march of 2009 at the very tail end of winter and then i hiked on and off through the spring and the summer and i ended up back in chicago at the very first few days of fall i wanted to see the lake in all four seasons
3: And did you just walk by yourself, or did you have some some people to accompany you at some moments?
10: Eighty percent of my walk was done solo, Um, and then I did have people join me here and there. I have two sons who are in college, and they uh, spent three days each on their spring breaks and walked with me.
3: And what was your favorite stretch of the hike?
10: Uh, It has to be Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. The geology, the features there are just on a scale unlike anywhere else on the
3: lake. And what do you think was, like, your biggest realization while on this hike? If you had if you had one, I think the transformation
10: of uh, having my pinpoint views of the lake, all the places I'd been and all those pretty little towns and beaches, transforming that into the holistic view and seeing the entire picture of the lake and putting that together. That was the biggest uh, realization for me. I see.
3: And um, how long was this trip again? it was
10: 64 days of hiking spread out over seven months.
3: I see, I see. Mm-hmm. And would
10: you do anything like this again? I am doing something like this again <laughs> next wow. year. Uh, I will take another 1,000-mile hike, one that allows me to touch all five Great Lakes, and then I'll be able to talk about the entire system, how it works, how important it is to our nation, um, and, and how battered it is, and we really need to take care of it a little better.
3: So so the goal for your next book is, is kind of a, another a call to action, but you're going to go into it realizing that rather than thinking about this, some of the environmental issues after the
10: Yeah, I'll, I'll actually research that very actively.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Well, in the studio is Laureen newenheis She is the author of A Thousand Mile Walk on the Beach. She will be at Everybody Reads here in Lansing. Um, that's next to Gone Wired Cafe. That'll be October 27th from 7 to 9 p.m. to talk about her book. Laura Neuenheis, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me.